sorry. What are you laughing at? <laughs> no, 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 for real. Actually, nothing. Okay. <laughs> How's that possible? Maybe it's something. <laughs> You're listening to Mud Spattered Philosophy, an attempt to salvage academic thought from too much seriousness. Welcome to the podcast. This is Alisa Torres, and I am joined here today by Alex Neff. Hello. And Antonio Sosa. Hola. He only speaks in Spanish, so I'll This be... might be a problem for the Oh, podcast. nope. There he is. English as well. Bilingual? Trilingual? Are you trilingual? No, bilingual. French? I, I read French. Need... Okay. But that doesn't really be... That's not a full lingual. That's not, not a full... <laughs> more like a li... <laughs> Something like that. Something. Anyway, uh, Antonio is also in the doctorate program with Alex and I, but he's in the political philosophy department. Mm-hmm. So could you tell us a little bit about <laughs> about what you're doing? What are you up to? Well, as Elisa just said, yes, I'm in the IPS program in uh, politics concentration, focusing mostly on... Well, I'm done with coursework, and I'm writing my dissertation on Plato's Gorgias. So... I have an interest in classical political philosophy, um, mostly Plato and Aristotle, like most people in the politics department here, or at least when the Johnnies were here. And in terms of the moderns, I like uh, where I'm interested in Tocqueville and Rousseau. There you go. There you go. That's and the, the Gorgias, what kind of slant are you taking on it? Is that is that too <laughs> too much to ask at this point? No, 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 it's not. Uh, well, yeah, it might be. It might be. It's too I don't, much I don't, to ask because I, we haven't announced to the listener that that's a dialogue of Plato. <laughs> That's right. That's true, too. Or that uh, Antonio's from the University of Dallas. Did we we, we not mention that? I thought that was assumed. uh, Yeah. It is kind of assumed. To our our fan base. And when I say from, that's where his program is located. University of Dallas. That's correct. I forgot to mention that. That's probably too close to the mic. (laughs) But this is also not an endorsement of University of Dallas. Yeah, that's the tricky thing. I think everyone we endorse it. They don't necessarily endorse this podcast. That's right. It doesn't work in the reverse. (laughs) Important. Especially when we're wrong. (laughs) Especially, yeah, exactly. Or buffoons. Right. Right. Well, political philosophy. What can you tell me about political philosophy? Considering that for our topic today, we are going to discuss Aristotle's politics. So, so, a little uh, framework here. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I I was asked to give a little shtick on uh, political philosophy. That's why I was brought onto the team as a politics We have to legitimize ourselves. Yeah, exactly. Um, This is not a question that anyone would ask at the University of Dallas. Um... And that's a good thing. I'll explain in a second. Okay. Okay. Um, or any, or in any university uh, devoted to the great books. But in actually, in most mainstream political science programs, the question of why are we are we going to spend valuable time reading Aristotle as opposed to the latest iteration of game theory or you know analysis of of voting trends among um, mm. citizens of rural areas of the United States? Science, right? So they might ask, well, why spend any time with Aristotle? Isn't that a kind of old and outdated way of looking at things? And so the question arises, well, should we justify political philosophy? And if so, how should we do it? I'm heavily influenced by a political philosopher of the 20th century named Leo Strauss, who would often begin his course lectures with a a dual attack on what he saw as the two... uh, main biases against political philosophy in our time, Mm. uh, which uh, went by the name, at least back then, of of positivism, meaning social science positivism, which I'll get to what that is in a second, and historicism, which he thought was more respectable, but still an obstacle to the genuine study of great books. Positivism, um, in the sense that he he meant simply, uh, entails 
starting from the fact-value distinction. And the idea is that science, genuine science, studies facts, but not values. Mm. So any scientist, as a scientist, mm. cannot say democracy is better than tyranny, right. even though many of them, of course, as Strauss noted, uh, were partisans of democracy mm. and had many values. Um, but that was simply a case of people being better than their principles. But the, the point is that their huh. principles were incoherent. And the ancients and many and all of the moderns, or at least all the early ones, of course, would stand against that and say that there is such a thing as the scientific, in the broadest sense of the word science, study of values. Um, and of course, Aristotle and Plato would be the, the premier cases of that. That would be positivism, historicism, which is a more sophisticated bias against the study of great books, which we can sum up with the phrase that the individual is the son of his time. So that, for example, if Locke has a given theory on property, or he locates property as the end, or the preservation of property as the end of political life, we already in advance know that, of course, that is what an Englishman, an English gentleman of the 17th century would say, given his circumstances. Mm. Um, it's a kind of relativism. Exactly. Mm -hmm. in, a, in, a kind of, in the broad historical mm -hmm. sense. So, a, a softer disguise, though. I think that right. Strauss would always talk about it as being much more subtle than relativism. Right. Sure. But it is, it's couched within the same Rooted in the, error. the right. philosophic principle. Right. I mean, a platonic way of describing it is that if you consider a historical epoch or horizon of opinion as a, as limiting the search for truth or circumscribing it and, and necessarily leading it to fail, then there is no way out of the cave, basically. What you have are different historical caves. And different right. philosophies can be more or less consistent given their first premises, but no premises is no premise excuse me is ultimately better than another there's no way to right. validate that even and even one's own assessment and elaboration well that's what strauss says multiple different areas is itself cultures, is mm -hmm. itself going to be well that's what strauss pointed out is that the historicist always excludes himself from the historicist analysis and assumes that the historicist insight right happens beyond history or transcends history sure. and this is the fundamental contradiction and so well, if we, if we, if we reflect on the fact that the historicist exempts himself incoherently from his own premise, then we have reason not to take for granted, at least. He would always stress, this is not a refutation of historicism, but there's reason enough not to take for granted that it's true. And therefore, there's reason to look in these uh, old books and to take the claims made in those old books about uh, finding what human nature is and what the human good is seriously. Right? And these are the claims that Aristotle and Plato Socrates often make, right? That they're not trying to see what is good for the Greek man, right? But mm -hmm. what is good for man, simply. Mm -hmm. And there are all sorts of presuppositions that when you just said the Greek man, I think this is something you see a lot in historicists, where there's this, just this kind of general assumption of what these cultures uh, understood or... Or even looking at, you know, thinkers such as, you know, the pre-Socratics, Socrates, Plato. There's such a variety of opinions, and they themselves sort through and take opinions of their own time very seriously. Uh, so just to say things like Greek culture, I think, uh, la lacks a lot of uh, distinction, right? Right. And is, you know, one, one way, I think, in which a lot of historicists can be very sloppy uh, in their assessment of, of various cultures. Uh, but I'm sorry. I yeah. You well, I'll add a caveat. Um, just so uh, I'm not only saying things that uh, that agree with what Strauss thought. Now, this, although these two critiques that he made, I think are fundamentally true, um, and had a huge influence on me because I was more or less 
and even unaware under the spell of them to some degree or another. So I experience these insights as quite a liberation, and so I have a lot of respect for them. However, um, at least the critique of historicism, I think, has led in some latter-day Straussians to an excessive disdain for, let's call it, historical sensitivity in analyzing texts. And I think that's something Mm -hmm. worth Mm -hmm. avoiding. I think that's something Strauss avoided. Mm -hmm. But his theory, I think, if it's too boldly, his critique of historicism, I mean, if it's not interpreted with sufficient nuance, can lead his, and has led his followers, some of them, to fall into that error. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I should be clear that the critique of historicism in no way logically entails a negation of historical context right. in reading the text. It's an ism for a reason, right? It's a perversion right. of genuine history. Right. So an example, well, just to, just to finish on that, an example yeah. he would give of using historical context well, well, I'll give you two very quickly. Um, in the in the battle against the 30 tyrants, mm-hmm. um, one, of the, uh, the, one of the decisive battles, um, which happened in uh, the Piraeus, or was, or was led from the Piraeus, it was led by what was known as the Ten at the Piraeus. Mm. Um, and in the Republic, there are, which takes place in the Piraeus, there are ten characters. Mm. And ten in a, in a seemingly artificial sense, because a lot of them don't speak. Mm. You right. would think, well, why are they ten? And I think right. this is a historical illusion, and mm. a valid one to take into account in interpreting the Republic, because Plato is making it. Right. So the author is aware of the historical context, yes. and he's using it to make his arguments. Right. And you so see this in, in Dante all the time, right. where he is asking his readers to look beyond his own text by referencing certain political characters right. or what have you. But there is there is also an interpretation of that historical context through Plato's rendition of it, right? So right. it's not like we can just objectively take this historical event and then say, oh, this is how Pla- it's being used in the Republic, there, there is a. Uh, we need to find you don't a connection want to between the text and history. Well, right, right, exactly. You don't want to reduce the text. What I was going to say is that I think what you really get with Strauss, at least in my opinion, and there's there's underlying criticism I have at this point, but I think most people would accept it, is that one might think that because someone is criticizing historicism or relativism, it's because they aff- affirm, especially in the case of politics or ethics, some positive ground for values. Sure. Right. Is Strauss that person? I would say no, he, he's not. He's someone who simply says, we have to recognize that, that this was taken seriously for a long time and that we can't understand works without it. But that doesn't mean he is championing, championing, championing <laughs> natural rights or necessarily, right? One thing that I think makes Strauss very modern is a certain the nature of his style of inquiry and his approach is a foundation for him. Right. I would agree with that. And if you would, you know, ask Aristotle that, I think there's a yes and no there. Right. And a no, and a, and a no that probably Strauss wouldn't have. That's what makes him more modern, at least. I would agree with that. Okay. He certainly is yeah. more modern than Aristotle and Plato. However, right. I mean, the origin of this dispute, though, yeah. is, um, is there enough in the substance of his thought for him to actually reject historicism and positivism? And there I have to disagree with okay. him sharply. Okay, if good. You, you see what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm drawing. So I think he there's enough in his own system, quote-unquote, okay. for him to reject these things. Fair. Now, whether yeah, that yeah, takes yeah. him as far as Aristotle and Plato and Thomas yeah. go, that's a separate issue, where I think I would give you more ground. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, this is all, This is I feel like, all been a very particular way of getting at political philosophy and the problems we're going to have to deal with to even start it, right? Because 
on the one hand, we're doing philosophy, which means we want to approach things reasonably, um, not just from things we've heard or things we've simply seen, but we want to be able to articulate them in some kind of argue, convincing, argumentative, and logically valid form, right? Although we're going to do that loosely in a conversation. The listener can check whether <laughs> logical arguments can be made out of the things we say. Um, and then so on the one hand, we're doing philosophy, and this is, on the other hand, this is political philosophy. So we're not simply going to be talking about just broadly the question of what is or something like natural philosophy. We're jumping right into questions about values and what we're what an individual person or a group of people or a city of people are supposed to be doing and why, right? And, you know, essentially the whole question of values immediately arises because how are, how are we going to begin based off of something like reason to articulate what a, a person is for mm -hmm. and what he's not for mm -hmm. and the, all of the in-betweens. And since we're looking at Aristotle's politics, I guess we can just talk about how does Aristotle do it? Mm -hmm. And the, the yeah. human being, as you mentioned, in, in discovering what he is for, uh, the question of, of man's end is in direct relation to the question of the city's end, right? So when we get down to the kind of what Aristotle calls the uncompounded parts of a city, it's not really the, it's not the human being, it's the citizen. And so the question of the human good is in this context, in this framework that Aristotle provides us in the politics, uh, is man as political. How, how it might differ from the ethics would be an interesting uh, interesting discussion, which we might not you right. know, bring up here, but it, it is different uh, that, you know, man's happiness as such versus man's happiness as located in the city is, mm -hmm. is a different uh, trajectory, a different beginning. And right. End. Uh, but the continuity there is important. But the, yeah, so we can right. say that in previously written work, the ethics, maybe a more well-known work, greater work, he ends by alluding to the beginning of the politics. The Nicomachean the, ethics. Uh, yes, the Nicomachean ethics, right? So, conceivably, although what actually takes place in the ethics is, is pretty wild and it gets very political, right? Uh, there we're talking a little bit more about the virtue of an individual um, and in service to his society and community at times, but ultimately what it takes for a person to make the kinds of decisions that make him an excellent and good being mm -hmm. and what that looks like and the different variations of it. He's always reminding us in the ethics that this doesn't happen except for in a city because uh, he even says at the beginning, very controversially and strangely, it seems, that the city, the end of the city is what ethics is aiming for. So already from the beginning, the, which starts the whole question of values, right, mm -hmm. his ethics, the city is of prominent importance, mm -hmm. the thing that the city is seeking. Yeah, right, absolutely. Well, you'll, you'll be kind of leading our discussion today. Do we want to kind of plunge in with uh, book book one, chapter one? Sure. Uh, we, we won't really go beyond too much book one. Uh, and of course, just given our time constraints, we're not going to do a, a thorough recap of every single chapter. Yeah, but we may not get much beyond chapter two. That's okay. Let alone book one. That's okay. So, 
Okay, well, uh, maybe we can just start with what Aristotle says. And I think that we need to read this in order to understand what does he even mean by a city. Great. You want to read that? The, the opening here? Sure. Chapter 1, Book 1. Since we see that every city is some sort of community, and that every community is constituted for the sake of some good, for everyone does everything for the sake of what is held to be good, it is clear that all communities aim at some good, and that the community that is most authoritative of all and embraces all the others does so particularly and aims at the most authoritative good of all. This is what is called the city or the political community. Good. So that's a pretty tight, logical argument that a city is what it involves or its parts or it's made up of any kind of group of people. In a sense, that's the basic unit we have to look at if we're going to start thinking about what a city is philosophically. Well, we're talking about communities, uh, reasons people are together. And he says, in every form of human association, there's some end. Right, maybe we're getting together to play video games, which means we're getting together for joy. Maybe we're getting together to exercise for physical health. Maybe we're getting together with our homeowner society because we want someone to cut their lawn. Maybe we're getting together with uh, politicians and lawmakers because we don't like how we're being treated in some form. Or even, I mean, getting together with fellow gangsters to rob a house. Yes. That would be part of it. Absolutely. That's important to say. That's a legitimate association. Right. So, and that's why uh, he says, you know, every association seeks some kind of good. Right. Um, And in the ethics, he he, he makes sure to um, note that sometimes those are apparent goods. Mm -hmm. That is to say, they seem good to those people. (laughs) They could be bad. Needless to say, we have this end-oriented idea of why associations exist. And the next move, really, I see there is, well, not all these goods are are equal, right? And when a uh, association, a higher association, in a sense, is required to get those lower goods or somehow is necessary or, or is the reason why we want those lower goods, and what I mean by that, right, is, you know, we may, we may need to eat, so we care about the culinary arts, right, but why do we care about that is so we can, you know, uh, live and have families and things like that, and we might say that's a higher end. So what he's saying then is, look, if we have some association that covers them all and in a way directs them all, right, wouldn't we say that that is the, the leading community? the leading kind of, the most sovereign, he says. And wouldn't we say that the things that the most sovereign association is concerned with are the most sovereign kinds of things? They're the highest end. Right. Right. And that leaves us with why this is so important to be studying the city, because in a sense, it's the, it's the hallmark and the, the reason for society and organization. It, it will... It'll become clear later, well, if we, if we do other episodes on, succeeding episodes on other books, but I don't think it comes out in book one, but the question of why should it stop at the city, um, 
why the city is the community that is the most comprehensive. Although mm-hmm. that's very important for Aristotle to mm-hmm. limit it there, and there I, he gives good reasons why it should be there. Right. Um, and harder to conceive of now. Harder to conceive of now, right? Right. But that I think an Aristotelian critique of today's politics would say that, given the scale at which we live, it's questionable whether we have politics in any meaningful sense, um, mm-hmm. or that Aristotle would think of as meaningful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and there are good reasons to defend that view. Mm-hmm. Aristotle's view, right? That we don't have politics in the serious sense because our scale is too gargantuan. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if bringing this up is too premature, but I couldn't help but think of the of uh, the Republic's or Socrates's city soul image throughout the entirety of Book One, and I think that the beginning of this chapter uh, is. It just is so striking how similar it is to the very beginning of the Nicomachean Ethics mm-hmm. in how, you know, he asks, uh, maybe I could just read that really quick. Every craft and every line of inquiry and likewise every action and decision seems to seek some good. That is why some people were right to describe the good as what everyone, everything seeks. But the end, ends that are sought appear to differ. Some are activities and other are products apart from their activities Wherever there are ends apart from the actions, the products are by nature better than the activity. So there, there's just mm-hmm. something really striking about why does Aristotle choose to proceed in this way yeah. mm-hmm. uh, with the question of the good? Mm-hmm. Uh, and in what way does, um, does observing man elucidate the parts of a city? And in what way does looking at a city reveal the parts of man? Uh, so this kind of Thing that Socrates right. does uh, in the Repu- Republic, the, the to to see the city writ, or to see man writ large, we're going to look at the city. Uh, so anyway, I just kind of wanted to bring that up because I, I do think it's important. Right? Yeah. I mean, I think a more modern thinker hearing this in some ways should be terrified because it's making uh, Aristotle is making claims about the city that touch the deepest aspect of an individual's life, right? What's good for them and every single association they make, right? Which makes this a distinctively ancient and philosophic account, right? That is that um, the the city is directed at the the meaning of life for, for us and it's supposed to help us get there. And as we're going to see, it's, it, it naturally does so. It's just part of, um, mm-hmm. whereas we might even define, someone might now define a city in, in a way that has to contradict that, saying we have a city in order to stop people from making those claims about what we're supposed to be doing mm-hmm. and somehow enforcing it. That's an extremely liberal and negative way. A formula, but just give an extreme, right? That's but I think, tend- I mean, can be how we think about rights yeah, at times. But I think there's a way to... S- Correct me, Antonio. There's a way to say that they're both right. Yeah. Um, and this is something, again, for which I, I think Strauss is the emphasis on the uh, wrong way in which uh, people have often translated city or polis sure. as city-state. Um, and one of the points that he made, precisely to make a similar point that you were making, is that for Aristotle, the city is a, or the political community is just what you described. Um, we, of course, as moderns, see that with a kind of 
disdain. Or terror, even, because of <laughs> yeah. the experience of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. And so I think to address that, one of the things Strauss would always emphasize is that in the city, um, there is no distinction. The city is not a small state, because the state presupposes a distinction between the state as the machinery of power and civil society as the realm of private associations. Whereas for an ancient like Aristotle, that distinction is really non-existent or exists very little. Um, and I think that's only possible for that to happen and to happen in a healthy way because of the scale. Right. Mm-hmm. Among other reasons, but that's the one that jumps out at me the most. Um, but once you get millions of people living across uh, hundreds of miles, mm-hmm. um, which is made possible by modern technology, i.e. modern science, mm-hmm. um, then it's really impossible to have a community understood in this way. And so then you do have a state on the one hand and civil society on the other, and you have a sort of a whole section of life that is understood to be not under the direct regulation of the right. state. Mm-hmm. That that would be creepy if that happened. Right, right. Um, and I think, I'm, the point I think he's trying to make is that Aristotle, were he to be alive in the 20th century, would accept that in the case of large states. Sure. That, that distinction. He, yeah, that he knows that they couldn't live the way cities live. And he right. kind of implies that when he critiques empires uh, later Good. on in the politics. right. Um, so, I mean, Aristotle had an awareness of large political scales, mm-hmm. and he did mm-hmm. not think they were conducive to virtuous li- living. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And all, all... But that's our scales. Like, that's all we have yes. now, our yes. empires. Right. And this is, like, something so beautiful about, especially Aristotle's way of thinking, is that the philosophic aspect of him gets up concepts that can inform us about a contemporary situation, which he did not have in mind right. at all. Right. Because he simply, or at least tried to get at the ligaments of political reality. And so we can run the equations ourselves after we, we understand him. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, Aristotle, because he's very close to what's going on around him and how people actually are, especially in any kind of practical science, right, which is ethics, politics, any kind of productive science where it's about, it's not just about what is truth, it's about a goal and how do we, how do we get there, right? Um, he's always going to stay very close to ex- examples from, you know, contemp- contemporary Greek history um, and things and other thinkers of his time, right? Which means his philosophy about what the city should be accords very much with how it seems to him the nature of man is, right. including the natural situation of technology, right? And obviously he's, he's, he's not operating under the assumptions that only became apparent in the last hundred years for us, right? That, for, that something like locality w- would in a way be obliterated by mass media, mm-hmm. right? And that's huge because, uh, you know, commun- communities are about communication, about goods, and how to and how to work together to get them mm-hmm. in a way, mm-hmm. so there is something very definitively localized about Aristotle's thought. Mm-hmm. It's all about how, how we're gathering and and the limit and the limits of that. But, mm-hmm. So this also brings up, um, in a way, Aristotle goes on after making this claim about. Uh, the city as the highest, most sovereign association of the ends. And he brings up something that I think comes to most people's mind when we think about politics. He says, 
Well, uh, what are what is rule? What is it to have power over someone? And what are the different kind kinds of those? Because the, in some sense, that's the way to uh, ask the question about what uh, is the city and what is politics. Is what is the nature of some some person having some kind of authority over another, which is interesting. So. I think this is what makes politics always a difficult ground to discuss, right? Is because immediately we're talking about authority. We're talking about um, decisions made about how people should live, and often cases only a certain set of people get to do that. Well, and just a quick note right. on that: just it is interesting that he begins with political rule and not law. And I think this is maybe another example of how of the of the city soul image. So that he's looking at, he wants to understand the nature of a city, but he locates it in, uh, in, in man, right? In, in those who have this kind of active role in formulating a city in relation, yeah. rather yeah. than rules, regulations. And, well, and that's, yeah. The, he'll the, get to that. The, but. the staple of classical political philosophy is the focus on regime theory mm-hmm. as opposed to law. Mm-hmm. For analyzing politics, mm-hmm. right, right with, with yeah, with regime being understood broadly as uh, the character of a given society as it is informed by its leading element, right. So every society can can be analyzed in terms of what it looks up to most, mm-hmm. and what it looks up to most is often, if not always, embodied in its ruling element, right. So if you have a society that's oligarchic, it's ruled by men who love money above all things, or who think that's the most important pursuit. Uh, that society, in a way, approves of that or looks up to that. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, and if the good that they look up to is not as genuine a good or should be subordinate to others that are higher, and there's another society that pursues that other higher good, then that, in a way, gives us an objective foundation, if that theory holds, mm-hmm. for saying that society B is better than A, mm-hmm. right? superior okay. to it, because it pursues a superior good. Right. And that's localized in the regime. Right? Mm-hmm. And human beings... And the distribution of offices in That's accordance right. with human That's beings right. of a certain sort. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's all really right. centered on human types. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, yeah. and that's, that's yeah. very much uh, put on display in, in book eight and nine of the Republic. Uh, and right. it's, yeah. it's, not, it's not clear to me whether, and Socrates kind of goes back and forth, whether or not you know, the oligarchic man comes from an oligarchy or an oligarchy comes from the oligarchic man. Right. You know, what, what's the cause of... of the, the regime or or the man, and that it's possible to have, let's say, a tyrannical soul in a democratic regime. Oh, certainly. You know, yeah. Right, so that it's not like every every single soul in every regime is is an exact an exact replica no, or right. something like no, no, something no, no. to that okay. effect. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I mean, I, I just I bring that up just because I think uh, that. But that, but that that good of yeah. the city is what gives the standard for for evaluating things in that city. Sure. Which right. is not necessarily right. the right standard. Okay. Right. Well, the, a good segue on that is Aristotle, in a way, has to have a, what I would call a pre-political investigation in order, as he does later on in this work, to talk more directly about what, what maybe people think more when they hear political philosophy, like regime the different regimes there are, what the highest one is, how to best organize these things. But he's still, uh, as is appropriate in philosophy, trying to get at what are even, what are the elements we're even talking about that make up the city and what can that 
tell us about like where we should even begin, right? And right. and that's why I think this is a very clever issue he brings up right at the beginning, and I think a very provocative one by asking, "Look, he said this is some this is a reference to something that happens in Plato's Statesman that he mentions right there in the beginning of chapter one, um, and it's the idea that I'm going to list four kinds of rule, right? That household rule, political rule, kingly rule, and and masterly rule, that, that kind of rule that a master has over a slave, are all essentially the same kind of activity. Seems like a weird issue at first, but when you think about it, the implications are very serious and vast. In fact, I think if you were to affirm that these are the same, at least one view of what that would mean is that's a very cynical view, right? Because you're saying that the kind of rule a master has over a slave is essentially what's going on when a political ruler has rule over his subject. It's just the quantity that changes, right. not that's, the quality. That's the claim, right? That these are all the same. It's really just the number of people being ruled. So this is what Aristotle's way of provoking the question, what is the essence of rule? Is it just one will over another and then some stories to say why different kinds of rule are different? Mm -hmm. Which I think really is a viewpoint that is common nowadays. People think about politics, they often think... Just power relations. Power, power. It's just power relations. So Aristotle, to the contrary, affirms, no... These are qualitatively different somehow, or at least some of them are. And, but he doesn't immediately give us the answers why. Instead, he says, here's how we're going to answer this question. Here's how I'm going to show it to you. He says, we're going to break down uh, the city into its uncompounded parts and, and, exa and examine them to see what the city is made up of. And this isn't a the parts of a fully developed city, this is, these are the parts of as they develop into a city. So that's what I sort of meant early by a pre-political assessment. How do human communities become a city? Because the city did not always exist, which is interesting. So in chapter 2, Aristotle lays out this sort of natural story about how any kind of human association became the city. And naturally so. Mm -hmm. Okay, so in chapter 2, Aristotle begins this, uh, this account of the natural genesis of the city. And um, he says, and I'll just read it. So if one could observe the things from the beginning as they grow, then just as in other cases, so too in these, one could study them most beautifully by that means. Now it is necessary that there first be a pairing together of those who do not have the power to be without each other, such as a, male, a female and a male for the sake of generation, and this not out of choice, but just as in the other animals and plants, by a natural striving to leave behind another like itself. So I think we should talk about this because, in a sense, this is Aristotle's first stab at how we're going to carve out the nature of mm -hmm. authority but and, and human community. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. But I would say just add the other senses to it as well. Okay. Just one more. 
So from a natural strategy, right? So, so that was the fir- this is the first kind of aso- kind of association and reason for association that happens, and in the same sentence, you get a second kind, right? And something naturally ruling and ruled for preservation, right? By the way, so the, yeah, just because I'm a, I'm a mm-hmm. heavy on Thomas at the moment, so these already would get two of the natural inclinations. That's Aquinas in uh, <laughs> for you, you more lovers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, Thomas Aquinas. Um, he talks about the four natural inclinations, and that's a big part of his natural law theory. Um, and so I'm always trying to fish them out in the ancients. Of course, they don't talk about them systematically, but right. but they still talk about them. Yeah. So uh, so I, I like to, to find them when I can find them. Yeah. And so we, here we already have two, right? Preservation out. and uh, the desire for procreation. Right. Generation and procreation. Generation, right. yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. That's anyway, true. The th- wait, you said there were four? The Thomas Thomas Aquinas talks about. The other one is... The other one we'll have here shortly, which is the desire to live in society, the inclination. And then the last is the inclination to know the truth about God. The truth about God, right. Right. Very interesting. So so this is the first inkling we get that man is naturally at least a social animal, right? It's one of these uncompounded parts, which is, like I said earlier, it's... uh, when Aristotle breaks something down to its elements or its parts, it doesn't necessarily mean it's uh, material parts or it's uh, the kind of most irreducible kind of elements of just matter, right? I mean, this is a a highly relational compounded part, you know? Mm -hmm. You would almost think that why wouldn't you break it down a little further than male and female relations? So, yeah, those are... I think what he calls the first two major associations. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but we should talk about the second one, um, which is something naturally ruling and ruled. Right. So, in a sense, what he's given us is first, we get together, no matter what. Secondly, he's given us, and we organize into a, some kind of hierarchy or, or power structure. Somebody is listening to someone else. So that's fascinating that we already have that on the table. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. So what, what constitutes a ruler and what constitutes being ruled? He says that uh, for that which can foresee with the mind is the naturally ruling and naturally mastering element, while that which can do these things with the body is the naturally ruled and the slave. Hence, the same thing is advantageous for the master and slave. So that's... that sentence right there I think is very interesting and where it comes up and how it comes up throughout the entirety of the work right but, you, know, you just pop the bubble on slavery we're gonna be talking about oh, slavery yeah, we are talking so, about yeah slavery. we're the there first, uh, first early indication of the the latitude of slavery for Aristotle the conceptual latitude what do you mean by that meaning that it, slave or, or what is slavish does not simply refer to the slave as we know it today well mm-hmm. right exactly mm-hmm. and, that, that and that's was... not to get Aristotle, Aristotle out of trouble because he, he also <laughs> talked about it in a more concrete way right. but sometimes th- what is slavish means simply what is subordinate exactly, right. exactly. right well and that's that's the question that I think will come up again and again which is what what other things fall into those categories, and you can even you right. can even divide up man and the parts of man exactly. into those categories, exactly. as we will I think sure. see later right. on that his ruling part and his ruled part. Yes, uh, and when those are not in order, 
a man could be a slave unto himself. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. It, it seems safe to say that Aristotle chooses two situations, even if you disagree with uh, slavery, even though we'll talk about what natural slavery is and why it's completely different than conventional slavery. He says this is a kind of slavery that's advantageous to the master and to the slave. Which might get rid of the category you have in your mind. Advantageous. Advantageous. What did he say? As an advantage. He's Canadian. Right, right. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, uh, we've imported a Canadian into this wholesome American podcast. (laughs) You're also not American. (laughs) (laughs) So Aristotle says, look, when we also get together, we, in a sense, form some kind of power structure or hierarchy. Uh... I think Jordan Pearson calls them dominance structures, but uh, he dominance starts hierarchy. dominance hierarchies. He starts lobster. with lobsters. We're, yeah, we're gonna I think I kind of like Aristotle's approach a little more, but <laughs> so do I. You um, but I think Pearson would really like this if, if he hasn't if he hasn't read it. He definitely should because yeah, it's right there with him. He's saying, "Look, uh, something ruling and something ruled is also part of nature," and here's evidence of that is our own individual experience of having a mind and a body. That's one way of viewing this passage. There are two ways, right? That's look, your mind seems to rule over your body, at least when it's in proper natural condition, Mm -hmm. right? Every time you feel like you have to go to the bathroom, you probably don't go because your mind decides if it's a good time to do that <laughs> or if you really need to go. Well, where are you getting that, getting that here? That example? Not the example, that. but the, even the, the appeal to the body and the soul. Well, so he says... I agree with you that that's where he uh-huh. takes it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In, so, in chapter two already? Yeah, because it's he says this, I think, in an excellent way, vague enough to okay. allow for the different interpretation. Right, right. so oh, he, he says okay. we have the power of foresight, almost as talking about a faculty, and then we have the power of the body or a body or a body to carry out these things. That's why. So another interpretation is, well, two different people, right? Or one person and a group of people, one who has foresight, the other who have the physical ability to carry it out. Right. Right. Either way, we're supposed to be conceiving this as an advantageous for both. So because we all want something good out of getting together, we agree that if it's helpful and it helps us get what we want, that something will rule. And some and something and someone will be ruled, right? Right. That's what he's getting at. Yeah. So that's a powerful start, I think. And I mean, uh, since you mentioned Jordan Peterson, um, I can't help but add that he, uh, to put it in Petersonian language, I think that and to, cr- to criticize the postmodern and cynical understanding of politics in terms of pure power relations is that, in line with the passage you just read, this distribution of status is. Ideally, at least, wholly in accord with competence, right? With the mm. fitness of a thing to do mm. a given right. part of the work, right? And is in no way arbitrary, conceptually speaking. That's how he understands this. That's perfect. Yeah. And immediately after making this distinction, Aristotle brings up something about nature, which I think explains why he thinks this way, right? Um, he says, and he's he's distinguishing. Uh, the female from the slave, but that's that's a different matter. But there's a bracket. He says, "For nature does <laughs> for nature does nothing stintingly, the way bronze workers make the Delphic knife, right. which we assume and some scholars have pointed out is a knife that probably had to do a lot of things right. and different yeah. jobs. So it was designed in a kind of universal fashion. 
wasn't particularly good at any one thing, but could do a lot of things. It's like right? the pocket knife. That's what he's talking about. Sure. You know, a little Boy Scout pocket knife. Anyway, keep going. He says, this is not the way nature makes things, right? But he says, but one thing for one job, since in that way, by serving not for many jobs, but for one, each of the instruments accomplishes its work in the most beautiful manner. That is like a central undercurrent to all of Aristotle's philosophy, informing everything he thinks. In a sense, that's his natural teleology, mm-hmm. right? That when nature is left to do what it uh, wants to do, and it's unencumbered, it's not sick in some way, um, it goes towards a particular end, and that end is the best state <laughs> of that thing once once it is achieved. Right. Right. Which is why he thinks he can just examine how we naturally act and begin to pinpoint what we are mm-hmm. and what's best for us. One of the uh, something that just jumped out at me, which I think is at, is at the heart of, of the pr- of a problem of politics from a purely practical point of view, meaning how to achieve um, um, healthy politics as understood by Aristotle. Is something he says near the end of Book One. I forget what chapter is that. Something something to the effect that it's it's much easier to. Uh, recognize a good body or a body that's good for X or Y than yes. it is to recognize a good soul. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? And of course that's why controversies arise in terms of distributing offices and, and work mm-hmm. uh, if these depend on certain qualities of the mind or the soul. Mm-hmm. Um, especially in, in today's politics. Right? Yeah. Um, and you could, I mean, I would almost go so far as to say that these are essentially controversial questions mm-hmm. for the most part, especially, yes. again, living at the scale that we're living at mm-hmm. when it's much harder to identify qualities in human beings because we have such a mediated right. relation to each other. Um, right. Because if you look at, say, sports teams and things like that, there's no controversy or very little. I mean, they almost live by this rule that Aristotle's right. described Natural here. competency determines what who gets what. And makes legitimate what. Yeah. what a person does. Because we right. see, because the end products are so easy to see because they, they come in terms of scores or plays and those are all physical so we can just mm-hmm. observe them. And so there's, no one doubts that LeBron James is far superior, superior to, well, I don't know the name of a second NBA player, so. <laughs> but you know, yeah, yeah. you know what I mean. <laughs> but when it comes to civic virtue, then it's much more controversial, yeah. which doesn't undermine the theory yes. at all. It's only a point about the practice of it, of getting right. getting into. Yeah. Well, no, it's interesting that you make the remark that, especially in modern politics and contemporary politics, the issue of competency and political agency, I think, is fraught with problems. Yeah, mm-hmm. like one example man, is what what's required for a person to vote. Right. right. We think that we think more about freedom and rights when we try to answer that question than we do about what is in that person's head. Well, that's, that's a brilliant example because that that is such a fraud issue that that question cannot even be asked. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, that would be because we might be, we might be a beginning right. an attack right. on, on freedom. Because if you ask that, presumably you mean not everyone should necessarily. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. But even if I mean, I'm convinced that you could if you. You can get human beings to agree in theory as to the qualities that that uh, legitimize having the right to vote, but then to get into the question of okay, mm-hmm. is there are are these uh, qualities going to be fairly assessed? Mm-hmm. Can we possibly devise any such system? Right. Then all bets are off. And this, I would say, in its own way, this problem also very quickly emerges in Aristotle's world, mm-hmm. and that's the that's the question of natural slavery mm-hmm. versus conventional slavery, right? Because literally the definition of a natural slave relationship is one in which the, the so-called slave 
can't do what he wants to do without his master. <laughs> can't be what he anyone would want to be, and so he gets to, mm-hmm. right? Which is very perplexing, and he acknowledges this is not conventional slavery. That is how slavery actually exists mm-hmm. at the time, which is through law mm-hmm. in, in, or force, mm-hmm. in, in essence. That is to say, and usually the case is a neighboring city or, or tribe or nation captures some other people, and they become distributed up as, as slaves, mm-hmm. right? And they do the will of the master of the household. And this is not natural slavery for him at all. And that brings up a whole bunch of questions about in what ways is it right that we use law in ways that are obviously not extensions of nature mm-hmm. in, bu- in building a city. Right. And that tension, I think, remains wide open for a long time. Right, right. <clears throat> okay. So we've discussed these two associations, right? The sort of necessary natural reasons we get together and we organize into some kind of ruling ruled structure, some kind of power structure. And then he brings up the next part in, that comes up in the natural development of, of a city. And it's the household. He says, a household of the primary sort is made of these two kinds of association. And Hesiod spoke rightly in composing the verse, first and foremost, a house, a wife, and an ox for plowing. And then the next part that comes up in the natural development of the city is the household. And he defines this as the kind of association organized in accord with nature for everyday life is a household. In another translation, the uh, messmates... Do you see that? Is that in your translation? What is yeah, it? that's what? in my translation. That's just there's another translation that I read that right. uh, household is is called companions of the cupboard. Isn't that nice? It's a little too Lord of the Rings. <laughs> I was thinking more like Beauty and the Beast, companions of the cupboard. You know? Yeah, that's good. That's good. That's yeah, good. No, that's yeah. great. Go on, Alex. <laughs> Being a good philosopher likes to bring in a little poetic uh, substance. Uh, to defend some of his there observations, you know. that's and, what I do and he mentions that in some ways this this is the first recognizable and uh, and actually existing association that comes up, and that will still be talked about later when just talking about the parts of already existing cities. The mm-hmm. household, in a sense, is the fundamental social unit of a fully developed city. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's very important that we understand what it is, and in some ways it's on a basic level how any any old individual gets what they need in, in any given day, mm-hmm. which is food, mm-hmm. shelter, mm-hmm. The, the most basic things. Um, the household, you're saying? Yes. Right. Yes. And that the village is an extension Right. Of well, these basic necessities. Well, what's interesting is that... On a non-daily basis. Yes. Right. Right. That's, yeah. And that's good that we bring up, okay, when it becomes the village, it becomes something about goods that are not just daily, mm-hmm. which really shows the thrust of why this keeps expanding, mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. we continue to have a sense of need for, for more things, mm-hmm. a natural sense uh, that leads us to form other associations. Mm-hmm. And the household, I think we'll see for a lot of reasons, is, isn't enough. Mm-hmm. 
And um, but it can it be it can begin from the lack of necessary needs. I do think right. We're sorry to bring this up, but yeah. it, this is this is right in front of us. It's members, right? So when the the household extends into the village, it's members some call milkmates. You know, mm. so it's you know when you ask your neighbor for for more than your household uh, produces, right? That's so right. Uh, it could be food. And, and Aristotle will talk about this more in the context of currency in a later chapter and money and how and how that fits into the picture of um, the city. But it's already appearing now that the reason we expand socially and go towards a city is that inevitably we realize we can get what we want better by, by developing into this higher association, which stops the city. So one household turns out to be better at farming, and the other one ha- is has a tendency for fishing, and happens to be na- maybe naturally disposed, or for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. And the people in the village, the, pe- the two households next to each other, come to realize that it would be helpful instead of both of them trying to do both of those things, mm-hmm. in a sense not doing them as well. They'll let each other do different things, and then maybe say trade, fish for some of the crop or something like mm-hmm. this. And now, now we need some way to govern that. And so somebody mm-hmm. in that collection of households mm-hmm. starts to have oversight mm-hmm. over what's happening. Mm-hmm. And he's a king. Mm-hmm. Aristotle basically says that the first kind of king happens in villages, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which usually are that is the eldest most person, just as is just actually as the first kind of king is also just the father of a household. Mm-hmm. He's king over his wife and over his kids. Mm-hmm. Um, well, the eldest of the village, when the village arises, when households start cooperating for their needs, um, is a kind of king. And currency comes in, right? Wealth, money-making comes in. I think when you see that trade kind of reach certain natural limits in that, you know, I might want to exchange a cow for some fish, but they're not equal in value, so we import this, this third Right. Which is money, right? Which acts as a kind of symbol uh, for for value, right. and and so now you can begin trading things that are not of equal value with one another, That's um, right. and just using this this third mediator, money, mm-hmm. um, to do that. Mm-hmm. So just another element there yeah. of how that naturally grows out. So the city is now the last stop after the village. Uh, in describing the. Uh, evolution of the village into the city, he says, the complete association made of more than one village is a city. Since at that point, so to speak, it gets to the threshold of full self-sufficiency, coming into being for the sake of living, but being for the sake of living well. Hence, every city is by nature, if in fact the first forms of association are as well. Okay. So what happened is one village begins to associate with another village and for the same reason that households began to associate with other households and become village for some kind of need for self-sufficiency. Mm-hmm. There was something that a one village could get done better if they became incorporated with another village. Mm-hmm. And that's easily imaginable if we think about maybe the differences in the way which, you know, geography and flora and fauna can make for different goods in different areas, right? Mm-hmm. And so you begin to have a, a people group that provides this one thing that's very valuable that you can't get here. And essentially, 
your commerce begins to mix, your lives begin to mix, people intermarry, and now you're looking you're looking at something more than a village. Mm-hmm. Uh, question. I, I don't know if it's appropriate to ask this at this point, but what what is self-sufficiency and why is it desirable for for our human communities? Is that uh, I, I don't I mean Aristotle doesn't mm-hmm. def, uh, go on to explain that right. here, so maybe it's yeah it, it must mean something like well I think it means um, so you okay. can provide everything you need by yourself uh, meaning you don't need other political communities that stand outside your own um, and 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 the fullest level of that is the city right it's interesting because. The city is self-sufficient, but every right. member in that city is not, and actually becomes yes. even, I mean, very dependent. So, in a certain sense, right, self-sufficiency does not mean uh, not depending right. upon something outside the self. Yeah. Well, But for the city, but for, yeah. for the city it does. For the city it does. But I think even, I wonder, right, I'm thinking of kind of the self-sufficiency and the kind of magnanimous man. That's only possible because the city is self-sufficient. Right, so yeah. the the magnanimous man, right, is is uh, has all sorts of. I mean, you said no. It, it depends how self sufficiency can be looked yeah. at at different registers. Right. Okay. So also. So um, the the self sufficiency of the magnanimous man, I think, at its at its heart, is a a lack of concern with the recognition of others. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, precisely because he loves what is intrinsically honorable. He's concerned with deserving honor. Mm-hmm. He cares less than most men about actually getting those honors. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, you could say that he has uh, interior applause that mm-hmm. is sufficient mm-hmm. for him if he does <laughs> something right. Um, so interior that, applause. So in that sense, he is... It's a uh, little clap inside your heart. Oh. For yourself. I like that. So in that That's sense, he, he, he is, uh, he's independent of the, <clears throat> of, the, uh, of the pursuit of honor or, uh, or the concern with honor. Right. That overwhelms other men. And in that sense, he's self-sufficient. Now, you're saying right. that... Um, well, because uh, it just struck me that there are all sorts of activities that the magnanimous man has to kind of give himself to in order for him to maintain his magnanimity. So, for example, uh, even that he uh, has a certain amount of wealth, uh, that he's someone who is also generous or practices certain intellectual virtues... All of that seems highly contingent upon his regime, right? Right. That, that a magnanimous man, even if he has mm. some kind of magnanimous potential mm. uh, in a in a in a forest, right, or, or some some kind of barbarian, whatever, it can't actually actualize that until unless okay, his good. regime provides that right and those possibilities. You're you're getting at the this important point that su- suddenly come up with the description of what the city is because he calls it unlike all the other ones the complete association right made of more than one village is a city implying all of the previous ones were incomplete right so one reason that the sort of paradox of self-sufficiency is what these natural associations have been striving to be hasn't even arrived on the scene until now exactly and so part of the self-sufficiency is actually uh, discovering what the self is that w- is trying to be satisfied, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we can see that in the kinds of... Because there's a way in which... Shouldn't someone rightly ask the question, well, 
why did like the the people in the household like who lived off the land and like seemed to have everything they needed like why why did they really need to why is it better or more natural for them to like develop these opportunist other relationships with people and i think aristotle would say well at this level at least it's because in each of those cases people are actually becoming becoming better exactly right um and wanting more out of life mm-hmm. in a sense and able to get it mm-hmm. right right so and that, we can find a way to do exactly less of the labor for instance and more of the things we like doing like telling stories or writing or something um and we think those are goods then then that situation allows us to do it mm-hmm. and so and in fact we didn't even realize we could be that mm-hmm. until that situation came up until that development came up and that's why when we get to the city he stops and says, this is, the, this is the sufficient basis in which we can satisfy the social aspects of our existence to become what man is. Exactly. Or somehow yeah. supposed to be. And so he says this very controversial thing is we've been doing this whole progression up to the city. And then he says, the city is, is primary and prior to all the other associations we just mentioned and to each of us, in a sense. To the individual. Right. So. Right. Which is, which is to say something like the city, the, the possibility for the city is presupposed in man's nature. Right. So that as soon as you know, it's. That's right. It's end. Right. Or man's end presupposes the possibility for the city. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that the city is this kind of bare condition for the possibility of man fulfilling his end. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that's what, he, you know, this this matter of self-sufficiency he says, uh, self-sufficiency is an end, and what is best. Yeah, and Aristotle, in a sense, also gives a, a common-sense argument um, for why we should accept that this, this city um, is, is, is prior and primary and really shows us what, what man is, right? Because we've been calling it a natural progression. Well, he says, look at the natural progression of individual things. He says, um, for what each thing is, when it has reached the completion of its coming into being, is that which we say is the nature of each, as with a human being, a horse, a house. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So nobody calls a child the exemplar of a human being, even though he is a human being. There's no doubt about it. But his potential, his end, is to be, in a more general sense, a human being, mm-hmm. right? And so uh, a horse, a house, right? And, and in a sense, has not fully developed all there is to being human before a child, a child before he can fully reason or fully take care of himself. Um, we might say has not experienced the most basic uh, level of what it means to be a, a man mm-hmm. or something. Mm-hmm. And, well, and it's not, I mean, this is, this probably goes without saying, but it's something that Aristotle does clarify later, I suppose, so. That uh, we're not just interested in um, in the kind of nat- in the kind of natural development of the child from a man. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're interested in the in the powers which the man is able to exercise as he is a man, um, and how that differs from his beginning. So, um, and in, mm-hmm. there's many ways in which even right the fully developed man is defective um, mm-hmm. in insofar as nature is concerned. Right. So he says later on. It is in things whose condition is according to nature that one ought particularly to investigate what is by nature. 
not in things that are defective. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Uh, that's just another reason why looking at the child <laughs> doesn't give us a, a good enough picture or a full picture of, of nature because it's deficient in many ways in right. being able to exercise its proper virtue. That's right. That's right. And a tension that immediately arises, actually, that I think actually validates the question, well, is this progression always good? Well, he's going to point out a development which becomes unnatural, which is the, the sort of improper use of money or desire for it, mm-hmm. right? So I do think that there's a, almost like a conscientious awareness that there is also a problem mm-hmm. with something that wants to expand constantly in, in, in our nature mm-hmm. that he's actually to say is unnatural mm-hmm. for that reason. That's why he... Um... I mean, so the city is the first time a community exists that is self-sufficient, and he stops it there. In other words, Aristotle associates political health, or the health of human beings living together with um, the smallest possible community in which self-sufficiency is possible. Mm, That's right. right? Exactly. Because an empire surely is self-sufficient. Right, that's a good point. But it also has another, all all sorts of extraneous elements that we don't need, Mm -hmm. um, presumably. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, right. Mm-hmm. And another thing I wanted to key in on is just in, in terms of the of the ever present quarrel between ancients and moderns. Um, in this section, he says that therefore, for all the reasons you guys have been outlining, the city is um, exists by nature, which is of course the big no no for the moderns. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's one of the things that they invested most intellectual energy. Uh, refuting either, you know, whether it be Machiavelli by implication or Hobbes, Locke, Rousseau, which is mm-hmm. that uh, civil society is exists by convention or by contract, more or less in accord with nature. But uh, however, I mean, I remember when I first started getting into political philosophy, it was very hard for me to accept that any ancient uh, could have an account of the coming to being of cities because it seemed to me so modern. But of course, what would be the alternative that cities or societies always existed? Mm-hmm. So that couldn't be the answer. Mm-hmm. So Aristotle here is saying, no, I'm showing you how cities form, how individuals form into, into couples, couples into households, into villages, into cities, and yet the city is by nature because the desire for each of those things right. is by nature. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, now, if you think about that, say, take Hobbes as an example. He would say that, and this is one of the ways in which Rousseau criticized him and called Hobbes a crypto-teleologist, <laughs> which is that, yeah, Hobbes wants to say that civil society is by contract and not by nature, but the desire for self-preservation points towards civil society as, mm-hmm. as the, the set of conditions that can satisfy that mm-hmm. desire. Mm-hmm. So therefore, there's still a desire. Right. There. Even if it's arising from fear. Even if it's arising from fear, it's still a natural inclination. Yeah. inclination. Um, now, let's say that's true for the timing, that Rousseau's criticism is true. Um, how would that be different from an Aristotle? I mean, why, if Hobbes locates in man a natural inclination that, that points him towards the city, why is it that Hobbes says, therefore, civil society is not by nature, and Aristotle says it does? And the only answer, and I'm not saying it's, it's the best one, but, but one answer I can think of is that for Hobbes and really for every modern, there are natural inclinations leading individuals towards civil society, but the transition happens by way of calculation mm. of interest. Whether I get the sense, maybe I'm wrong, that for Aristotle, mm-hmm. 
there is no calculation in the leap from village to city. This is a natural progression of our inclination. So we're not thinking in, in a cost-benefit analysis. Okay. So, well, it would be better if we formed a city, actually, than a village because of X, Y, and Z. But it's right. simply the natural fulfillment of desires that we already have. Right, right. Well, well, well that you I think it's slightly, diff- slightly different. Go ahead, go ahead. So the difference is, is that um, for Aristotle, some degree of artifice especially intellectual artifice, is not a departure from nature, but a continuation. Right. But moderns have certain epistemic commitments to how thought and reason work, right? That right. make them incapable of claiming that. That is to say, That's what you mean. once our reason is involved, <laughs> um, uh, we're no longer claiming this is just a continuation of nature. This is now artifice. It's up to our creati- right. creativity. Because for the moderns, nature goes with the passions, mm-hmm. and almost exclusively mm-hmm. that. Right, and they yeah. rejected something that has to be subdued and yeah. analyzed and taken apart, but not something that reveals. Right, and any Hobbes kind calls thoughts they're like these defensive scouts. Mm-hmm. Right, uh, in a sense, he's thinking of thinking more no. as a, as a weapon against danger than the height. <laughs> right, and they're, of man's and nature. they're in the service of. Mm-hmm. Certain passions, mm-hmm. right? As opposed to mm-hmm. something I learned from James Carey as a formulation is that that reason has has its own appetites, as it were. Meaning, mm-hmm. reason has its own desires apart from what any given passion might desire. Sure, sure, that's um, interesting. And that's that's I, I like that formulation because it helps you understand how reason can can rule the passions. Yeah, right? reason well, has I to wonder, want something. I mean, is it? I feel like ap- appetites would be a confusing word. For me, I, maybe you can... Or passion, that just meant passion. Yeah, well, I can see how the intellect has certain uh, object, proper objects, which uh, requires mo- the passions in order to be fulfilled, to move the intellect toward them. Right. I don't know if... Mm. I mean, can you say that the intellect, properly speaking, has appetite? Is that just... I mean, it's... Yeah. Analogously or uh, yeah, something that's, like that's that. Yeah, that's how I take yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Well, just to, to elaborate on that, the, uh, the difference between... A, a political society forming out of uh, fear, uh, in kind of Hobbes' view, is that that inclination that the city, in that sense, is only accidental to uh, some other natural inclination for for preservation, right? So it's right. it's right. it's for self defense primarily. It's not that, teleolo- the teleological outcome, right? That simply is because best. the city follows an inclination doesn't mean it's teleological. Uh, because it's right, so that right. that's one difference I think with Aristotle is that we see uh, when Aristotle says that we have these desires to to make to naturally rule or to create these bonds mm-hmm. um, to leave behind an image. These are all kind of positive desires that actually, if you follow through with them, actually lead towards man's uh, flirt, yeah, okay. completion. And let's look at though Aristotle wants to give the reader, the thinker, plenty of grounds for why this is true. Because I think, uh, as anyone might recognize, what just happened when the city came on the scene is different than when the village came on the scene. It's different than when the household came on the scene. Because somehow man was not man. Yes. Until mm-hmm. the city came. Yet, somebody had to found it. Mm-hmm. Right? He's not He's not saying the city always existed. Which is interesting. Is that like a grim, a grim view? Like for a long period of time, mm-hmm. it just was the case that humans mm-hmm. couldn't really taste mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the joy of what it was to be human or, or to live for human Or how does the founder come about? How does right. a founder create something that he himself 
doesn't take yeah. part in or or have come from, you know, how could he have the kind of intellectual capacities even? Well, for, good. And I think this yeah. is this is the hidden bias, I guess I want to say here, is this kind of meta, right? Is And it's something Aristotle says more clearly, even in like the metaphysics, is that... Um, that the highest joys of life for humans are contemplative and that those aren't possible except where leisure is possible in, mm-hmm. a, in a community. And that's not possible unless there is a city taking care of enough needs so that at least a certain body of people um, are able to spend their time um, doing what they truly would want to do given all basic needs are taken care of, mm-hmm. right? Which is art, poetry, and for Aristotle, at least, philosophy as the highest thing you could do, mm-hmm. right? Um, reflecting about, about the big picture, I suppose. So, and that's what Aristotle's doing right now. And he doesn't, but he doesn't say, maybe he's trying to avoid, you know, what everyone thinks he probably is thinking, right? Is that, well, look, we can do philosophy. So clearly the city is better. But he, I think he, <laughs> he carries on his natural account for why this, why we should think this is true for anybody. And it's because, well, let's, let's again look at what the individual is, right? He says, um, for nature, as we claim, does nothing uselessly, and a human being alone among the animals has speech. And while the voice is a sign of pain and pleasure and belongs also to other animals on that account, since their nature go this far to have perception of pain and pleasure and communicating these to one another. Speech is for disclosing what is advantageous and what is harmful. And so too, what is just and what is unjust for this is distinctive of human beings in relation to other animals to be alone and having a perception of good and bad, just and unjust and the rest. And it is an association involving these things that makes a household and a city. I think that's an, a hugely important statement that has revealed something that Aristotle hasn't been talking about this whole time mm-hmm. is there's some other need we have and it's situated in our possibility of ideas and perceptions of good and bad and just and unjust, which I think makes up a whole, at least half of a missing picture that's been going on here mm-hmm. is, um, and, and fits with this picture that, the city completes us is, is there something that man is trying to understand through all of this mm-hmm. um, and provide opportunities or trying to resolve something within his ideas? And you can also see, you can see political history, you know, the downfall of empires and things like this. In some way, you can read that as a narrative about opposing ideas about what is true, mm-hmm. right? About man. And I think here's where Aristotle brings that up. And he says, it's been going on, not even, even before the city, at the level of the household. Mm-hmm. We are already beginning to have to have discussions about what each member of the household ought to be doing mm-hmm. and what not and how to best spend one's time mm-hmm. in there. And so I think this is the other claim for the city being the complete is somehow, mm-hmm. and here's why, as he says, only at the level of sit of a city of a political association do you have a judicial process, mm-hmm. which is the source of order for a city, and justice is a judging of what is just. Mm-hmm. And later Aristotle will say there's no re- there is no regime without law, right. um, 
that those always go together. Mm-hmm. In fact, the most defective kinds of regimes are the ones that are, in some ways, Flawless. the law is is kind of a facade mm-hmm. <laughs> or, or doesn't exist, right? Or changes too often. Sure, sure. So I think that here we begin to see where our inventiveness, maybe even with practical goods, finally lives up to our our idealistic ones. And we begin to, we have an invention in a sense that covers our issue with mm-hmm. conduct <laughs> mm-hmm. and right, right and wrong mm-hmm. or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can't have that unless we have a city. Mm-hmm. Right. The, yeah, the, the common good is more um, is identified when there's law. There's movement toward it uh, to a certain extent, which is going back to the first, again, the first uh, impulses of a, of a city, that it is oriented towards some good, and that is made clear by laws, which is... Yeah. Yeah. And going back to what Antonio kept on bringing up in terms of why stop at the city, why not go into an empire or something larger... Uh, I think the the possibility for justice and in order to see it uh, at work concretely, um, you is it's more perfect in a city because you can actually uh, assign and distribute labor. And as you mentioned, the kind of parts of a household, uh, you can right just assign different uh, parts. And what is one's own is more clear when there is a certain smallness to uh, to the community. And so, I, you know, Aristotle will talk about that later, but it's one of the reasons why he, when he engages with Plato and the Republic, and he starts, you know, kind of mentioning why uh, it would be very bad for, for the city to have, to share everything in common. One of the reasons is because, uh, you know, each individual will not feel any sense of responsibility. Because, uh, you know, everyone's son will be another, another person's son. Uh, there will no, not be anything proper to you. And so there will, no, will not be any kind of sense of duty or justice to it. And so I think the, the larger, if a city gets too large, uh, that the inability to, set, to uh, identify justice increases. Right. But well, was there anything else you wanted to say in terms of chapter two? Nope, that is that is the natural journey to the city, and the um, to the city. after that, Aristotle puts on the brakes and he says, "Okay, now that we know what a city is, let's look at it's a complete city. Let's look at its fundamental part, which is the household." Right. I feel like if we don't name the podcast episode "The Natural Journey to the City," we should at least open an amusement park or something yeah. where you can yeah. journey through this kind of virtual reality of a city yeah. made manifest. I, I want to try the natural slavery. Thing. That'd be great. No. Are you? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Never mind. Bad yeah, idea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh. Okay. Okay. So, um, Antonio, any insights or our tensions or questions that if we haven't gotten to that we're really just irking in what we've gone in your through? mind or in in book one What's in anything ahead? you've read yeah. uh i just want to make sure that we get we don't miss anything too large that might have been brewing in our noggins um well, what do we think he means by uh, one who is incapable of sharing or who is in need of nothing through being self-sufficient is no part of a city, and so is either a beast or a god. 
Oh, yeah, that's interesting. I think Nietzsche adds somewhere, or both. <laughs> nice. Interesting. Yes. That's hilarious. And he's probably referring Put to that himself. on a bumper sticker. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I kind of thought he was talking about the the philosopher in terms of the god. So, something. Really? I don't know, man. That's. I see why you're doing that. Well. Let me let me look. If you're, you know, like you said, the politics follows the ethics. And by book 10 of the ethics, Aristotle more openly begins to describe the divine position of contemplation um, and this, this sort of, uh, and the, the philosophical lawmaker, right? And I think one can see why that does seem divine because isn't the political philosopher someone who stands outside of their city in a way? Sure. <laughs> and, and puts their transcendent reason over the question of the particulars of their city and sure. tries to change it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and may, So maybe there is some grounds for thinking this whole thing about someone who doesn't need a city, maybe it, maybe it's a reality. Maybe not. Maybe it's just a way yeah, of covering I, the bases I, and saying... He's saying, this is a, po- a beautiful way of saying that if you're a human being, uh, you are not... Uh, completely self-sufficient, right? Only a beast, meaning only an animal or act, or a god, literally a god, I think he means. Sure. Could fall outside of this range. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, because if you, if you introduce the philosopher, that, so that would be like saying, so the very best of human beings is no part of the city. I mean, there's a, perhaps a sense in which that's true, but I don't think that's the sense in which he's, because he's being very anthropological yeah. here. He's, mm-hmm. he's mm-hmm. saying what all human beings need in a, in a kind of nuts and bolts way. Well, it, but there's this odd, I mean, there's this question in, in my mind too, uh, you know, in, in the ethics, right? I mean, we are as much as possible supposed to resemble God in a certain, right? I mean, in terms of our, our contemplation and... But how much is it possible? How much is it possible right. is, right, is a question. Is the, is the consideration yeah. that brings you down a bit. Right. 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 He says man, when he is beast-like, is worse than the beasts. Yes. Right. No, that's important. That is Why important. is that? Because the corruption of his reason makes him more destructive than any... I mean, an animal is what he is innocently. Mm-hmm. The corruption of the highest is the... Worst. Right. <laughs> that sounded more poetic right. in my head. That's the title of the podcast. <laughs> right. So it's, it's like reason doesn't disappear. Rather, the faculty becomes hijacked by lower passions. But it still exists. Mm-hmm. And therefore, it's like a more dangerous weapon. Right. Uh, no, I'm with you there. But then, but, it, but then that being um, who, whose search for perfection points beyond the city towards a divine perfection. Mm-hmm. Based on the way you've described it, and I would agree, yeah. um, we could not describe that person as, as as having no part of a city, right? Right. Like, that's not a proper way of understanding human perfection as as a human as conceiving of a human being that is so above these concerns that he yeah that he stands outside the city fully. I mean, it's one thing to say that the philosopher's mm-hmm. quest points beyond the city. Yeah, but yeah, he still. Yeah, yeah. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Well, I mean, maybe he's. Maybe this supplies an expl- explanation for why Socrates was killed or something, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? He, could not, he couldn't be contained or something. Yet, yeah, that he, is interesting. at the same time, Socrates very willingly remained a citizen and one who wanted to 
abide mm-hmm. within the limits of the city. Right, so, I mean, he doesn't fit the description of this God of this sentence, or does he? Or maybe he does, because question. maybe that's why he had to be eradicated. <laughs> but he... <laughs> I'm just, this is like a... You know, well, the, the reason why I thought of Socrates is because uh, yeah. there's the question in my mind, uh, you know, why does Socrates stay in Athens? Or what, what, is, what is his relationship to the city? Is it the same as every other citizen in Athens, uh, or is there some kind of kind of magnificent generosity on his part that he is continuing to remain in the city, even though he doesn't need the city? Uh, is Socrates self-sufficient? Uh, and if he is, why does he need the city? If he is not, um, then is he really a philosopher? <laughs> you know, I mean, these are just that. I mean. That's that's part I think of the tension with with Aristotle and and the life of philosophy is, on one hand, uh, you you want to be and imitate God, uh, on the other hand, you have a body, you're embodied, and there are certain obvious limitations to that. Sure. So, I don't. I think it could be read. You know, that passage can be read in a kind of, um, in more than one way. It's not just that we have a body, it's that in our very soul, our soul has an intellectual and a moral requirement. I mean, for its perfection. Mm-hmm. Our, soul, our, our soul has moral requirements as well as intellectual. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's this idea that, um, that a, a God who is completely beyond the city, who only intellects things, and that's how this is the character of this being's perfection. Mm-hmm. It's problematic to me to conceive of human beings as perfectible in that way at all. I mean, because right. you're leaving right. out the moral dimension, well, which sure. is a social, can only uh-huh. be okay. exercised socially, right? Yeah. I mean, that that's... You right. raise a but good also, question, though. Well, well, I was just going to say in that, uh, you know, and Aristotle, again, he talks about this when he says sharing everything in common would be a problem because man wouldn't be able to exercise temperance uh, and what was the other one? It was uh, temperance and courage, maybe. Later on in book three. In book three, yeah. There were a couple of virtues, right, that, you know, man yeah. can't exercise if everything is held right. in common. Moderation and liberality. And liberality. Because moderation right. keeps us from uh, sleeping with other people's wives. Right. Which is why we shouldn't... <laughs> If we get, if he says, he says, if brilliant, we have a rule brilliant. that makes uh, <laughs> wife's common, uh, you know, woman common property right. of everyone, then we'll do away with the reason. I think he's kind of joking. We'll do away with the reason for moderation, with the need for moderation. I don't think he is. <laughs> well, I mean, the, the I think what he's I, trying I to point is, out there yeah, is yeah, that yeah. moderation. It's not. It's not like man. It's not as if man's depravity goes away. When you socially contrive ways in which certain virtues aren't practiced, right? So without moderation, without the ability to practice moderation, you don't actually get rid, right? You don't actually get rid of man's depravity. Right. Uh, And he goes on to to say just that. Um, and so that's, that's the question I think I would have in, in just the, you know, our most recent exchange in that, in that, uh, is the, if if man is without a city, uh, will he um, be perfected? You know, it, maybe we we would say, oh, there's no need for justice. 
uh, if man doesn't live in a city, right? So why would you even create that problem for him by putting him in a city? The, the problem is, is that there's a certain injustice in his soul that needs to be um, made just, and that can only be done in a city. Um, so then I guess that would answer the question in, uh, in the negative, right? That, um, you know, that, a, that a man's perfected s- state is actually can't, can't be out of the city. Right. Um, not fully, not fully. Right. But it's, it's still a confusing question for me. Yeah. It's, it's, still, it's just confusing in terms of us, man's self-sufficiency well, like, and, you know, um, his godlike quality. Whatever Aristotle thinks about divinity and philosophy in relation to it and godlikeness, which he certainly does, we at least know that he takes he takes the the impetus of nature extremely seriously. Mm-hmm. Right? That we are political animals. In some ways that's the same thing as being animals with speech. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. And so although so we have this tendency for speech, but guess what? We also have just like all the other animals need for procreation, mm-hmm. right? And preservation, right? Mm-hmm. Well... Any uh, last-minute thoughts that need to come out? Well, maybe we can get together next week on natural slavery and other things like that. Well, yeah, I think we should at least... I mean, we, we cover today basically just chapters one and two yeah. of book one, but they are important. It seems that like the text itself is, is asking us to consider the beginnings of Aristotle's own approach, right? He's always talking about whenever he goes on to a new book, like, we're going to make a new beginning. And you see this in uh, Socrates or Plato's dialogues all the time, that whenever Socrates makes a beginning, the investigation goes a certain direction. And if he changes that beginning, mm-hmm. it goes another direction. And so uh, I think it is important that we focus this, this amount of time to Aristotle's beginning because it says yes. a lot about how the work unfolds. Right. Which makes it difficult to have a more thematic discussion sure. about political issues because Aristotle's beginning in the politics, I think, is peculiar Yeah, in, in, in certain manners and it's staying very close to a particular structure right. um, before it allows you to go out, outside of it. Right. So, yeah. All right, well, good. Uh, Until next time. Bye. Consider supporting Mud Spattered Philosophy in our effort to promote the great ideas of Western civilization. For more information, you can visit the Mud Spattered Philosophy Facebook page. Shoot us an email at mudspatteredphilosophy at gmail.com or visit our website at mudspatteredphilosophy.weebly.com. Thanks for tuning in.